My family and I are overjoyed. We're really excited to be, to be here this morning and also to bring you the word of God. Uh, I bring you greetings from the saints as, at ECCD and especially the elders. They send their, their regard. Uh, we rejoice greatly uh, in God for what he is doing here in Sharjah. We pray for you regularly and we deeply cherish the partnership that we share in the spread of the gospel in this part of the world. And it's always a joy. I mean, any of us come here to, to see what God is doing in Sharjah. And so this morning, uh, once again, deeply uh, joyful to be bringing to you uh, the word of God. But before we look at what God has for us this morning, let's uh, have a word of prayer together. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we, we rejoice in your kindness towards us. Father, we thank you that we, we who once were your enemies, today we sit at your table. We have been brought near. We are now your children. And this morning, we can even come boldly before you and even hear you speak to us. We pray that even as we open up your word, you would open our hearts, O oh Lord. Grant us the faith to believe and the will to live what you tell us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> now, we, we all love new things, right? Don't we? We love new things. Uh, it's either getting a new job. I mean, it's the excitement that comes with getting a new job can be the newly married couple. So exciting. Or oh, the, the new parent. This, uh, on Friday, Nora and I were visiting some members of ECCD, two members who just had a baby on Monday. The excitement that they were having was just palpable. You see, these are new parents, and they, you, you can feel it. And that is the joy of, of some, having something new. can be the joy of having a new car, or I'm sure that the teenagers among us, the, the new gadget, an iPhone, a new Samsung. It's so exciting to, to have something new. Whatever it is, newness is very appealing. Right? Not many of us like to have old stuff. We want something new. And not surprisingly, the Bible describes our lives in the same way. The Bible describes our lives in terms of the old and the new. In many places in the New Testament, Christians are called to put off the old self and to put on the new self. We see it in many places in the New Testament. And in this case, the, the new or the old self is the life that we had before we became Christians, and the new self is the life that we have after we become Christians. So that's even the Bible, that's how the Bible speaks of our lives. And that's why in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we read that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And like our daily experiences, the new life in Christ is appealing. When people see our new life, they become curious. I mean, you used to be probably someone who was living in the world, doing whatever you wanted. And then all of a sudden now you change and the world sees you and it's like, they become very curious. And sometimes they are attracted to, to the new you. Of course, not everybody will be happy when you change. Right? Especially the, the people that you, you used to hang out with, do all the silly things. The people that you sing together with, when you change, of course, they might not be happy. 
But by and large, when you become a Christian and you have a new life, people will take notice. The world will look up and say, we knew this person before, but now he is so different. So newness is very appealing and it makes people curious. And that's how the Bible describes our old life and our new life. The central message of the Christian faith. What is the central message of the Christian faith? It says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus, the eternal son of God, who never sinned, who never did anything wrong, he went onto the cross. He died on behalf of us. We deserve to be, to be punished for our rebellion against God. He went onto the cross and died on our behalf. And the Bible says that on the third day, God raised him again from the dead. And he has declared that anyone who will repent from their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ, they will be saved. They will pass on from death to life. That is something that happens instantaneously. When you become a Christian, that's what happens. You move from life, from death to life. It happens like that. And that is what happens to us when we become, uh, when we become Christians. And so this morning, that is the central message of the Christian faith. And if you're here this morning and not yet had an encounter with Christ, that, this is the message, this is the reason why Christians come together to, to celebrate what God did in Christ for us by coming to die on the cross and forgiving our sins when we turn to him. This is the message of the Christian faith. And one thing is that there is an expiration date for, for you to believe this message because a day is coming, God has set a day when he would come and judge anyone who has not repented and put their trust in Christ. So that day is coming. And this morning, if you're here and not a follower of Christ, what I want to do is that I want to invite you to Christ. I want you to come and experience the joy that Christians know. To move from, from death to life. To have your sin forgiven and be justified and have peace with God. But if by God's grace you are here this morning and you are a Christian, which many of us are, the question before us this morning is, now that we've passed from death to life, what is this new life that we are called to live? How does it, does, how does it look like? The new life that we now have in Christ, how does it look like? And the second question is, are you living this life as a believer? And this morning, the next few minutes that we have, that's what we want to be devoting our attention to. We want to find out, what is this new life in Christ? And am I living this new life in Christ? And to help us to do this, this morning, we will turn our attention to uh, the letter to Ephesians. Paul's letter to Ephesians chapter 5. We'll be reading from verses 20, from 1 to 21. Ephesians chapter 5, 1 to 21. And what I want us to do this morning is that you'll be greatly helped. I want you to open your Bible. If you, if, if, I think I'm sure you have. And if you don't have it, it's on your phone. You should turn to it. I want you to keep it open. We'll be referring to it quite a lot. I want you to see that what I'm saying is what the Bible is saying. And so we'll be looking at it uh, step by step. Uh, so Ephesians chapter 5, 1 to 21. 
Paul says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor cruel joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time, you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to descend what is, the, what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. See, whenever you, you see the word, therefore, in the Bible, what you want to do is that you want to go back and see what was said before, before the word therefore was said. Because it always suggests, the word therefore always suggests that an argument has been made and what follows is just a conclusion of that argument. And that's what we see in the book of Ephesians here. That's what Paul is doing here. So when you read verse 1 and says that therefore, quickly you want to see what was said before. And that's what this morning we want to see. Uh, so the Bible really defines the book of Ephesians. Uh, there are, Paul is divided into two. The book of Ephesians is divided into two. There are two sections. One to three is one section. And then you have four to six is another section. The first section of the book looks at all the glorious doctrines of the Christian faith. So you look at Trinity, justification. You, you, you look at doctrines like grace and, and mercy, things like that. The first half of the book, that's what it looks at. And then chapter 4 onwards, what Paul does is that he now tries to let us see the outworkings of these doctrines. So when you say justification by faith, when you say sanctification, what does that mean? So chapter 4 onwards, what you see is the outworkings of these doctrines that uh, Paul has spoken about. And so when you look at 
chapter 4, verse 1. Just, the op- I mean, just flip back uh, of your page and you see chapter 4, verse 1, uh, what Paul says is that, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So that's 4, uh, verse 1. And then again, 4, 32, see what it says. It says that, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So when you look at the entire chapter 4, Paul now is moving from the doctrines and now he's moving into how we need to walk. And that's what the therefore in chapter 5, beginning of chapter 5, that's what it's trying to do. It's giving a conclusion based on the arguments that we've seen before. So Paul is saying that if the Ephesians have heard of Christ and have learned of Christ, then they should be living a life. They should put off the old self and put on the new self, which is created after the likeness of Christ. If you know all these Christian doctrines, sanctification, justification, if you know all of this, then you should put off the old self and put on the new self. And this morning, the passages that I just read, you realize that if you go through, you see that there are three marks of our new life in Christ. Three marks of our new life in Christ. The first one you would see is that it's a walk in love. The Christian life is, or the new life is a walk in love. And then two is a walk in the light. And then three, a walk in wisdom. So if you are taking notes, that would be the outline. A walk in love, a walk in the light, and a walk in wisdom. So first, let's look at a walk in love. What does that look like? Look again with me at verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1. Look at it. It says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul calls the Ephesians to imitate God in his essential attribute of love. In 1 John 4, 7, 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, the apostle John, he tells his readers, says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. According to John, the very definition of God is love. And so the logic is that a Christian is someone who has been born of God. God is love. If you are born of God, then you must be love. No, there is an African proverb that says that a crab does not beget a bird. I mean, it doesn't work. If you're a crab, your offspring will be crab. If you're a bird, your offspring will be bird. And so a, a crab does not give birth to a bird. The surest way to know if someone is a Christian is to look at their love life. According to Paul, a beloved child of God will imitate God in his attribute of love. There are no two ways about that. So you, and usually when, when we talk about love, the world understands love to mean different things. I mean, most of us, the love, what we think of love is what we see on TV, what we see in Hollywood. But that is something that Paul does not leave to us. 
Paul does not leave us to just kind of like conjuncture what love means. He tells us what love, what, what specific love he's talking about. So look at verse 2. He says that, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. There is a specific way God loved us. And that is the standard of love Paul is calling the Ephesians and us this morning to imitate. It is not up for discussion. There is a specific way God loved us. And when we go through the Bible, there are four elements about God's love. There are more that can be said, but there are four elements that I want to draw your attention to. When we think about God loved us, what specific way, what, is, what, are, what are the contours of this love that God had for us? There are four things that I want you to have in mind when we think about love, God's love. The first thing is that the recipient of God's love are undeserving. God's love are towards undeserving people. So the, the Ephesians were not some holy and lovely people, like, oh, very cuddly and very nice people. No, they were not. In chapter 2, verse 1, Paul describes them as, says that they were dead in their trespasses and their sins in which they used to walk. So these were people who were dead in their trespasses. They were destined for destruction. They were not some deserving and very cuddly people, no. So the first element of God's love is that it was towards undeserving people. Secondly, the love that God showed us was costly. It's costly. No, God did not give us some leftover love or some leftover grace. Perhaps after Adam and Eve sinned against him, what he could have done is that, say, hey, Archangel Michael, or maybe Archangel Gabriel, which of you should I send? And just send one of them, go and just clean up the mess. He could have done that. But that was not going to be sufficient. So what did God do? He says that for God so loved us that he sent his only begotten son. That was how much it cost God to save us. It was costly. His only begotten son. Our redemption cost God his very son. And then thirdly, there was no self-interest for God in, in his uh, display of love towards us. It was not as though there was some hidden prophet. Sometimes, as sinful as, as we are, when you do even good for others, kind of like you're looking at, what would I get from this? There's always that hidden agenda. That was not God. God, the love that God had for us, there was no hidden part. There was no self-interest on the part of God. Because the Bible tells us that God does not have a need to be met by us. If I have a need, then you can promise me something. But there was, there, God is sufficient, self-sufficient, and yet he loved us. So there was no self-interest on God's part. And finally, God's love in Christ was a willing sacrifice. Jesus was not compelled to go to the cross. We didn't, God did not beg him. He went willingly. So in verse 2, he says that the, the, the sacrifice that Jesus Christ gave was a fragrant offering. What made it fragrant was that it was willing. In John chapter 10, Jesus says that he's the good shepherd. He says that I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay down of my own accord. 
Jesus laid down his life of his own accord. And this is the kind of love that Paul is calling us this morning to imitate. It's not calling us to some warm, fuzzy, emotional feeling. That is not what this is about. That's a Hollywood movie. No. This is the love that God is calling us to imitate. And the question this morning is that, does this describe your love for one another in grace? Is this how your life, can this be described as the love that you have for one another in grace? Is there a tendency to befriend those you consider deserving? I mean, only this one I like. I like this person. This is very, well, very cultured. I like the way they look like. So is there a tendency to befriend only those people? Just look over the past six months. The folks that you have invited to your home or people that you've hung out with, who are those? Do they look like you? From the same country, we like the same spicy food. Is, is that, is that, is that the, 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 the composition of the people that you invite to your home? Yeah, they all earn the same amount. We can actually sit and have a good conversation about stock market, cryptocurrency. <laughs> is that, is that the composition of your friends at Grace? So as you, as you think about your hospitality plans for the coming months, what I want you this morning to do is that I want to challenge you to invite someone different. Start your own grace challenge this coming month or a few months. Maybe hashtag invite someone different. <laughs> Probably that's in the, over, the, over the summer, that's what you should be doing. Does your love for others depend on how convenient it is for you? Are you prepared to go out of your way, let your shadow be interfered so that you can help others? Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2 verse 4, he says that let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. That's what Jesus did for us. Though he was equal with God, he did not count equality with God as something to be grasped. But he emptied himself, took on the form of a man, came down, and he died on the cross. A very shameful death. He did not think about only his interests. He thought about the interests of us. And that's what he's calling us to do this morning. Now, if your love for others does not cost you anything, it is possible that you are giving them your leftover love. If the love that you have for others doesn't cost you anything, doesn't sh- cost you, it doesn't uh, conflict with your shadow, it doesn't, you don't feel it. It's because it's a leftover thing. And that's not love. Jesus' love for us cost him his life. And now what he's saying is that we should go and imitate that love. It might, for you, it might mean going out of your way and picking a brother or a sister to church. It might mean making a time during the week to read the Bible or a book with a brother or sister so that you can do them spiritual good. That might be what it, you might not be asked to, to give up your life, but this might be the way God wants you to, to, to love others. And I know by God's grace, there are plenty of such examples in grace. We've heard about you. 
And we thank God for that, that already there are, there's so much abundance of, of this kind of love. And my prayer this morning is that there will be many more of such where people go out of their way, people caring for others in hospital and taking food to others who are sick. That, we pray that there will be more. Because you know what Jesus says? He says that it is only when we love one another that the world will know that we are his disciples. So the first mark of our new life in Christ is a walk in love. Second is a walk in light. A walk in the light. Look with me at verses 3 and 4. It says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. And then look at verse 7. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Like many cities in Asia Minor at the time, Ephesus was known for its idol worship. In, when you read Acts chapter 19, we read about uh, a guy called Demetrius, uh, a silversmith. Uh, what he did was that he, he stared, when Paul went to the city, he stared up the whole city, and, and, and they, they all rushed on Paul. The reason was that Paul had spoken against idol worship. And that was the city, the composition of the city, it was a, a city full of idol worshippers. And these were the kind of people who had now been converted into, into Christianity. And what Paul is saying here, and he's admonishing them that, they should put on the new life in Christ. Their new life shouldn't be the life of that pagan lifestyle because paganism was always, uh, always came with all kinds of sexual immoral acts like cult prostitution, all kinds of debased acts went along with that kind of uh, worship. And what Paul is telling them here is that now you've converted, now you are a new person, and so you should put on the new life. And so that's why in verse 3, he says that sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. And by sexual immorality here, he means all kinds of sexual sins, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, or even pornography. Everything that, that debates or that perverts the, the natural sexual orientation of God is part of this sexual immorality. And that's what Paul is telling them to put away. Then if you look at verse 4, so first we're looking at all these sexual immorality things, and then verse 4, he tells them to put away filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking. So we see from these two verses, 3 and 4, that there are two aspects of a Christian's life that Paul has in view here. A Christian is known by his conduct, and a Christian is also known by his speech, his or her speech. says that he admonishes them that their actions should be free from sexual immorality, impurities, and covetousness, and their speech should be free from filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking. They are to put away the old self and put on the new self. Look at verse 8. 
says that, verse 8 says that, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. 1 John chapter 1 verse 5 and 6, the apostle writes, says that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you cannot claim to be a Christian if you love your sin. Now, you cannot be a Christian if you hold on to your sin. Because a child of God does not make a practice of sin. You cannot be a Christian. You cannot claim to be a Christian if you are having an affair outside your marriage. It doesn't work. You cannot claim to be a Christian if you are sexually involved with someone who is not your spouse. It doesn't compute. And in the office, I mean, how are you going to witness to your colleague or in your neighborhood, how are you going to witness to your neighbors? If you are part of the profane talk, the crude joking, all the things that, the, the filthy things that they say, how would you go and tell them, oh, by the way, the last time we had this, we, we shared a banter about this crude thing, we joked about all kinds of filthy things, and then the next time you come, oh, Jesus loves you. It's like, it doesn't work. <laughs> so, Paul is telling them that they should put on the new self and put, put off the new, old self and put on the new self. Now, I know when we talk like these things, people think that, are, you, are we not being too legalistic? Is Christianity not a matter of the heart? Does it really care? I mean, is it, not, is it about what I do and what I don't do? Is it not really about the heart? Yes, <laughs> that's what Jesus said. Jesus says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You know, so an immoral life is only but a reflection of what is in your heart. So it's, it's not really about a matter of being legalistic or being, being, being gracious. It's just a matter of life and death. That's what it is. In verse 5, look at verse 5. It says, that, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. You know, it is a lie from the pit of hell that makes people think that I can live any way I want and still call myself a Christian. It's a lie straight from the pit of hell. No, you cannot live anyhow and be a Christian at the same time. Look at verse 6, what he says. He says that, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. It's a deception. If anybody is telling you that, oh, you can live anyhow, and then be so call yourself a Christian. No, it doesn't work. A Christian is someone who is walking in the light. And then if you look at verse 8, on a post more positive side, we see that walking in the light Has, has a very positive thing. So look at verse 8. It says that, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of, of light. The, light. the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. You can tell if someone is walking in the light by looking at the fruit that they are producing in their lives. 
Jesus said that by their fruit, you shall know them. And Paul says that the fruit is of, of righteousness or the fruit of light is found in all that is good, right, and true. So if you want to see if someone is walking in the light, look at the way they are living their life. Are they producing good fruit? Are they producing fruit that are true and that are righteous? That's how you tell. We live in a time where we are being told, I mean, there's no objective truth. It's all based on what you think, what I think. The Bible doesn't agree here. It says that there is something as an objective truth. There is something that is objectively right, and there is something that is objectively good. These are not relative terms. These are terms that are sacrosanct. They are cast in stone. And God is the standard of what is good. God is the standard of what is right. God is the standard of what is righteous. And that is what Paul is telling us to, to descend here. So in verse 10, he says that, try to descend what is pleasing to the Lord. This is not up for grasp. It's not based on your opinion. It's not based on the opinion of your friends in the office. It's based on what the Bible says. So how do we try to descend what is pleasing to the Lord? How do I know what is right? How do I know what, whether I'm walking in the light? There is one simple way to find out if what I'm doing is right. There's a simple way. Whatever you want to do, you should always ask yourself, can I say amen to what I just did? The conversation that I just had, can I say amen to it? That is the way to try to discern the will of the Lord. And it's not, again, based on your opinion. It's based on your knowledge as a Christian of the Bible. And so that is what it means to discern the will of the Lord. If we are walking in the light, one thing that we will see when we are walking in the light is that people, people will see it and they would act very differently. In verse 11, Paul is telling us that it's not just enough to only not speak bad things. It's not, only good, not, it's not enough to not only do uh, bad things or say bad things. What he's saying is that because we are light, we should live as light. So if you look at verse 11, look at verse 11. It says that take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Our presence as Christians should produce a light so powerful that unbelievers would, be, would have discomfort when they'd want to do evil in our presence. When you are shining, when your light is shining, one effect will be that when people are about to do the wrong thing before you, they are, they, are, they are scared. They are not sure because your light is shining so powerfully. So if people don't have any discomfort, if people don't have any inhibition in your presence to do evil, it's possible that your life is not shining well enough. I've had, there are many stories, I'm sure you've had as well, whereby people will say, or they, they will say that the colleagues in the office they waited for me to leave before they told the crude joke. 
I'm sure some of you Christians, some of us have, have had the same instances. They would wait. Oh, because when you were there, they're like, oh, the guy is here. We cannot say this. Oh, madame is there. I mean, there you don't take your... Because your pre, you've not said anything, but your presence there is shining so brightly that they cannot do evil. That is what it means when you are shining. So Paul says that expose, you have to expose them. And it's based on what, the way you are shining. And I know here, I mean, that, there's a lot of story. As I, I'm saying this, I see a lot of you shaking your head. We pray that there will be more of this. That your light will shine so brightly that unbelievers, people who are, who are not following Christ yet, they will see your good works and they would they will be convicted by that. And that's what God did for us. When we heard the truth, the son of righteousness, he arose on us and by his grace, we came to faith. And so that's what we need to be doing. We should let our light so shine that perhaps God might be merciful to these friends or colleagues of ours and through that, they might come to faith. So the mark of a Christian is a walk in the light. First is a walk in love. Second is a walk in the light. And thirdly is a walk in wisdom. How does your new life in Christ look like? Is this how, is, does this describe the way you live in your life? Are you walking in love? Are you walking in the light? And finally, are you walking in wisdom? Look with me at verses 17, 15 and 17, or 15 to 17. It says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. In these verses, Paul warns the Ephesians to be careful how they live their lives. And he gives them the reason in 16b. If you look at 16b, why is he telling them to be careful how they live? Because the days are evil. As we said, these were pagan, former pagans who had now become Christians. And once you leave the camp of the evil one and come to the camp of, of the Lord, you become a target, enemy number one for the devil. And so that's why Paul says that, uh, Peter said that the adversary, your adversary, the devil prowls around like a rolling lion seeking someone to devour. So he says that, watch, look carefully how you live. The days are evil. The days that we are living in are not very different from the days that they lived in. Now, the, the, the period between the first coming of Christ and the second coming is just one and the same. So the time they were living is the same time we are living. It's a very evil time. This world is now being ruled by the prince of the power of the air, the evil one. And he's no friend of the Christian. And so what we need to be doing is that how should we be living? We should be living our lives with wisdom. And that's what Paul is telling them to do. Look carefully how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. And then look at verse 17. He said, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Understanding the, word, the will of the Lord is what it means to live in wisdom. How do we come to know and how do we, how do we come to understand 
what is the will of the Lord for us? If you're a Christian, how do, how do you come to know this? And so Paul helps us again in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. He says that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We come to know the will of the Lord by giving ourselves to the study and prayer, the study of God's word and prayer. If you want to know what my will is, what will you do? You have to come and ask me. You don't guess. Husbands and wife, when you, when you want to know what does my wife want me to do, I go and I ask her. You cannot guess. And so if today, in the same way, if I want to know what is the will of the Lord, he's given me his word. The will of the Lord is here. So I know him, I know his will through his word and through prayer. And that is, if you are not reading your Bible regularly, if you are not doing your devotion, your quiet time, you cannot know the will of the Lord. And you will be living as an unwise person in a very dangerous world. Our adversary, the devil, goes around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. A Christian who is not reading his Bible or her Bible, a Christian who is not praying, will become a lunch for the devil. The devil is no friend of a Christian. And so a walk in wisdom means discerning what the will of the Lord is and staying in your word. And then it also means a life that is filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's what we see in verses 18. It says, that, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And once you are filled with the Spirit, look at the result of that in verses 19 and 21, or to 21. It says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a life that is filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the result. It's a life that is God-centered and others-oriented, right? It says that you fill with Holy Spirit, you sing to one another, and then you sing also to the Lord. It's not, when we meet together, we're giving encouragement one to another. We are not giving our opinions to people. What we are doing is that it's a life that is based on the word of God, and that is what we, we're doing to one another, filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking with one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That is a life that is filled with the Holy Spirit. That is a life of wisdom. It's God-oriented and others-oriented. A life that is filled with the Holy Spirit, we also see in verse 20, is a thankful life, right? Giving thanks always in verse 20, and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible knows nothing of an un un ungrateful Christian. Everything we are, whatever we are today, is because of God's grace. And so a life of wisdom that is filled with the Holy Spirit is a life that is thankful. And then we also see that a life that is filled with the Holy Spirit is a life that is lived in submission to God and to one another. So in verse 21, it says that submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You are not submitting to someone because they are more wiser or they are more probably intelligent than you. No, we are submitting to one another as Christians out of reverence for Christ. Beloved, if you've come to know the Lord, our lives in Christ is not a business as usual. 
if you've put off the old self and put on the new self, then it, sh- it should show itself in a, a walk of love, a walk in the light, and a walk in wisdom. Now, I know after hearing a sermon like this, it's very easy to go and try to, okay, now let me go and start doing, doing things. We are very doing people. But we see in verse 18, I want us to always have that at the back of our minds. In verse 18, it says that they should be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, the Christian life is initiated by the Holy Spirit. He is the one who opened our eyes and he opened our, our, our hearts to see God when the gospel was preached to us. He's the one who brought us to faith. He's the one who is going to sustain us through and he's the one who is going to bring us home. So from the beginning till the end, it's going to be the work of the Holy Spirit. And that is one thing you must have at the back of our minds. In John chapter 20, verse 22, after Jesus was raised from the dead, he told his disciples, he said, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. It was this Holy Spirit who empowered them. He emboldened them, gave conviction as they preached the word. He's the one who sustained them when they were persecuted. He's the one who finally saw them through until they fought the good fight and won the race. And the same thing, is the same Holy Spirit is going to do that work in us. Even as we see God in his word and rely on him on a day-to-day basis. Our new life in Christ is the one that is worked out by God and he would finish the race with us. And so this morning, my question again to you is, does this describe your life as a Christian? Are you living this way? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you alone have worked out this amazing miracle in our lives. We thank you that it is not based on what we do. It's based entirely on the work of the Spirit. And so we pray that you would work in us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.